Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Ray. And I'm your other host, Chris. Chris is talking to us from the other side, dressed like a Mormon. I, I'm talking to you from a a a, a vat a vat of salt water in the middle of a abandoned carnival Whoa! on the beach. And if no one and, understood that reference, <laughs> <laughs> well, they will in a couple of seconds. Because right, what are we reviewing today? Souls from 1962. So we went way back for this one, which we don't we we haven't really done a a movie that's quite this old in a while or ever. No. Oh, well, I mean, the 60s? Cre- Creature from the Black Lagoon was That's true. That was that's when? old. Creature from the Black Lagoon was in 1954. So it's older than this film. And we covered Nosferatu Right? Yeah. Yeah, we did 1922. Okay, so my first statement was right. We haven't covered a movie that's this old in a in a while, not ever. It's been a minute. So I I was excited because Carnival of Souls is one of those movies where I can sort of like turn it on and let it play. I don't need to pay like super close attention to it. But I think it it does a really good job of creating tension for like it's all things that we've seen before but i think watching it remembering that this was done in the 1960s i think is also something that's important and something to keep in mind while you watch this movie is it like a revolution of like a revelation of a movie no not by any stretch of the imagination but i think when you look at it from the perspective of yeah, all right, I can see where other films have sort of, like, pulled from this, like anything else that's come before what we have now. I think it just adds a, a tiny level of appreciation, just like a smidge. I think Chris hated this movie. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. I'm, like, I'm very lukewarm about the film. I mean, don't I be mistaken, I... this isn't a movie that I, like, fawn over. I just enjoy it because I think it's a good example of early thriller, early horror films that have these themes and motifs that you've seen time and time again that we've heard people call revolutionary the way people carry it out. And I I, I think that some of the things that they do, it's just the way it's done. So watching this, if I was in the theater in the 60s watching this, I probably would have shit myself. (laughs) Watching it now, you're like, okay, I've seen this before. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's hard to like. Well, well, I guess maybe it's not hard for some people. For for me, it was really hard to watch. Not because it because it was scary or like overly gruesome or anything, but like it was not engaging for me at all. Like this movie is a pretty short movie. I think only like eighty three minutes. Yeah, it's like it's like an eighty minute movie, so it's like an hour and twenty and uh, twenty, which isn't a which isn't a long movie by any standard, but this felt like a three-hour movie to me. This is me. This is this is coming from someone who over the weekend watched the Snyder Cut of Justice League, and I was like, my my attention was pretty wrapped for the most of that, and that's a four-hour movie. And here, I kept pausing, kept 
checking the clock. It's like, oh, you have like an hour left. Oh my god, 30 minutes left. How do I have 11 minutes left? Why is this movie so drag? And like, I, I did, I definitely didn't get as much enjoyment as I th- thought I would. Or, well, look, I didn't get much enjoyment from this film. I mean, that's, um, and I think that's because I thought the pacing was off. And I'm not like this one of the people who are like who can't watch black and white movies. Like I do like black and white movies. I do like older movies. And like I just don't think there was anything narrative wise that like drew me in or kept my rapt attention. And if anything, my immersion into the story was constantly derailed at how problematic like stuff was. And I I get it. It's like the movie was made in the 60s. So it was made in a different time, in a different context, you know, socially, politically, culturally. But, like, I kept getting distracted by, like, like a lot of problematic things, which de- hindsight's everything, right? So... Oh, 100%. This movie is extremely problematic in terms of female representation. And the most problematic things is her relationship to the other border that is in the house with oh her. Oh my god. And I, it's extremely toxic. It's so this bad. This is one of those it's so bad. This is one of those movies and I don't say this very often but I think that done correctly, I think Carnival of Souls could be a again, very unnecessary, but if someone wanted to redo this movie, I think they could do it quite successfully. There was a remake from 1998, but it it was and I haven't seen it. But from what I've been told, it is nothing like the 1962 version. In fact, the only thing it has in common with it whatsoever is the title, and that's it. I would like to see a remake, as it is from the 1962 movie, maybe with like a little bit less toxic masculinity in it. But I would be curious to see what a diff- when another director does with something like this. Because I think that it has potential to be a little bit more terrifying i also think that this movie stretches the definition of slow burn and like may- yeah. really makes you work for it <laughs> yeah yeah like the jumping off of that point real quick um it felt like a really really strong out but mediocre Twilight episode or Twilight Zone episode to me. The, a lot of the moving, but a lot of the pacing, I I understand like objectively. I understand what I was trying to do, trying to give it like a dreamlike quality, especially uh, like trying to question the POV of the main character. You know, establish her as an unreliable narrator, like. Is she actually dreaming or is she actually seeing all these apparitions? Is she slowly going insane? Is she going through PTSD? It, like the way the, the dreamlike quality where like she's having like these fugue states where like suddenly no one could see her or perceive her or her going to like these hip hypnotic waking trances while playing the organ like cool or or and like and also trying to sew in uh, a matter of intrigue and mystery by th- these random shots or glimpses in her dreams or in her waking life to this mysterious building uh nearby the beach but to me it just got so exhausting and i just didn't it's like okay where is this going 
just move the story along. Uh, and on top of that, it, like, yeah, like it's it was just hard to watch because like this movie, like this movie, if I could, you know, sum it up in terms of like social issues and cultural issues, this movie's all about like toxic masculinity. It's all about gaslighting. It's all about like people not being empathetic to someone's needs, especially if they have symptoms relating to like trauma or mental illness and PTSD, anxiety. Yeah, exactly. And and also like this super weird like emphasis. Well, maybe not maybe not now. Not weird. I mean, I guess back in the day, it was super weird. And, like, it just shows how much religion or, like, the lack of religion is prevalent, at least in U.S. society, where, you know, they made it, They made such a ham-fisted, like, sort of moral moral messaging. Like, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's immoral for you to work at a church and not believe in God. Or, or it's, like, and it's... And it's it's immoral for you to or like your soul. We have to look out for your soul and like and like, you know, all these patronizing stuff of, of like the priest. Like you can't work here because your music is satanic and heretical and profane. But you should still worship God and you should still like seek out your spiritual health. And it was like it's like the, like to me, like this this lady would fit so well in like today's unfortunately pandemic society or just like the modern society like she doesn't she doesn't want to so she doesn't want to socialize with anyone cool that's fine you don't need to be you don't have to have a social life if you don't want to if you're comfortable with that a job's just a job great that's awesome like you you don't you don't have to be forced into like going to church or you like you work in another job you don't have to like participate in like a quote-unquote mandatory like after work like social outing no like once the clock is out if you want to go live your life just sit at home drink wine and like not do anything else fine great like i i found that really like really poignant is like wow this she should thrive she should be she should be she should be she's the she's the one person i think she would she would love working from home it would thrive because she even says like i don't need to be religious to work in a church well apparently back, back you do. in the 60s yeah like apparently that's like you know the moral outrage like oh clutch some pearls like you're not religious you can't yeah. and you can't and, and you're an organ player no no that i mean like i, I think i know it's a really modern way of saying it and this is rooted in the context where like a lot of a religion that doesn't have like the same sway it, it does and you could you know you could say in a lot of america there's a bit of like nihilism or at least agnosticism or atheism that's a lot more president but like you know at the end of the day i mean yeah i mean you could have a job that you love you could have a job that it's really passionate about. you could have a job that's like a hobby just extrapolated but you know at the end of the day job's still a job and if, if you want to like turn your brain off and you you shouldn't feel shamed for like this is just a job for me you know okay so yeah that's it and it's like good for her good for her for setting trying to set those boundaries in the 60s yeah sometimes it's the only way to get through a job you just have to you have to like go through the motions and do what you have to do and then go home and that's Mm -hmm. it 
I know they got really intense. How- like I've, I was just more engaged or enraged by like the social political message or commentary or context. <laughs> that was like the that's like the, the quote unquote the most engaging thing I had of this movie is like how much I got pissed off by it. I just I had the feeling that like if she decided to come back and she was just like I went home I. I spoke to God and, you know, like, I'm not trashing. I'm not trying to trash people who believe in God. Like, that's, that's, you know what? Your belief is your belief. I, I respect that. That's cool. It's just, I don't share it and respect that, please. But it was one of those vibes that I got where if she, like, went back to the priest and was like, I spoke to God. We're all good now. Um, No more sacrilegious music. He probably would have welcomed her back with open arms. I also just feel bad that she, like, we never got to see her, like, play in church. Like, she never got to play for, like, a, for, like the whole reason why she was there. Yeah, she, she had, like, an audition, she, and then she was just pro- providing some ambiance and, like, or, 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 or doing some practice. She got fired before church. I mean, all, all that aside, though, I, I don't know. There's just something about this movie that, like, I think it's, I think it's the dreamlike quality to it. And some of the the people that you see in it that remind me so much of these other movies I've seen that I just find it so enjoyable. Like there were parts of this movie where I was like, huh, this kind of feels like a racer head. And it's just, I think that that's why it still sits with me is because this is one of those movies where you can see so many other ones within it. It just, it creates, it creates a, uh, a different kind of atmosphere. Again, not one that you know, haven't necessarily seen before, although in 1962 that may have been the case, but now we've seen it done to death. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, like, narratively speaking, you know, didn't like it, but... It's nothing to rhyme, it's nothing to write home about. It's actually just a really simple... I mean, there's an Ed, there's definitely an M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end of it. Like, she's been, de- she's been dead, the, like, spoiler alert, she's been dead the whole time. The end of the movie ends with them pulling the car out of the water, and she's dead in the front seat of the car with the rest yeah, of so, the girls. So for some context, if you got this far, and, like, apologies for us just, just diving right in, we didn't really do... Oh, yeah, we, we don't did, did, we didn't spoilers. even do Spoilers, we didn't really do a recap, <laughs> but basically... Uh, there's like two two young or actually well two different cars filled with uh, two sets of uh, individuals. Uh, one of the cars was was being driven by uh, our leading lady, ooh, uh, Mary Henry. Uh, they get into this drag race, and the car that Mary Henry was driving uh, crashes to a bridge and falls into the water, and everyone's presumed dead. But then Mary Henry emerges on a a bank in the middle of the river doesn't remember how she got out but she survived something's clearly changed about her they kind of leave it ambiguous whether there's something supernatural or it's just a matter of like she you know had a really intense near-death experience and she's having some sort of like uh she's dealing she's under her bot her mind and body's under trauma and duress so she moves to Salt Lake City, um, where she get, grabs a new job as a church organist. And the rest of the story, she's trying to 
adjust to life after this strange incident, whether these being with really strange, creepy interactions with John Lynn, her neighbor, uh, who can't say no, and he's constantly badgering her to go on a date with her with him and her troubles at work because like she's haunted by this vision of this mysterious pale man that shows up in her dreams um and she show and apparitions show up uh in real life so she's questioning her sanity or her her pov and she's also drawn mysteriously to this one abandoned park or pavilion on the shores of Great Salt Lake. And it's her kind of descent into a madness slash her gra grasp on reality so slowly on be unmade where she's seeing the pale man. Everyone thinks she's crazy. Like uh, she's she also has those states where all of a sudden she's talking to the people around her and no one can see or hear her. And it and it comes and goes like without warning, which is kind of something that I, I, I found appealing. I don't even correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't even remember there being like, you know, sometimes in horror movies, how you know something's about to happen because of the audio cues that they have, like something happens, like something changes and you sort of get like tipped off to something's about to happen. You didn't really get that in this. You didn't really know that it was happening until you were already in it, which I really thought was awesome. And I think that that's something that I would like to see more of in modern horror because you always get tipped off. You always get tipped off. And I like how you didn't in this. The transition into those fugue states are pretty subtle. Like the, um, the first time we see it, it's a little bit apparent. It was, uh, I think it was like the shopping center scene. Yeah. Where like, there's she like a in weird. the changing room. Yeah, there's like a weird decision in the changing room. And there's like this weird wavy effect that happens across the screen. Yeah. Uh, she, then, but it's like very subtle. And then it, it, it continues with her looking at herself in the mirror. And then she, she walks out and like mysteriously no one's able to see her, hear her, perceive her. Um, the next couple of scenes, like the transitions, is not that apparent at all. I don't know if that was intentional or lazy or whatever, but I like that it wasn't. Yeah, apparent. I, I but the 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 follow up scenes where you she's back in this fugue state, uh, it's a very subtle cue, but you can see there's like a visually there's a slight difference, and that's because like the norm the movie as normal is black and white. Uh, but when they were filming it for these dream scenes, they filmed it with a sort of cyan filter. So in those fugue states, like the coloring, even though it's black and white, the coloring or like the saturation looks slightly off, slightly different from the rest of the movie. So that that's also that's like a visual cue you can pick up where you know she's in a this weird dreamlike state. So in these dreamlike states, you, like, especially in like the third act where like she's running around, she's escaping. So basically, she gets fired. She's trying to get out of the city, and, and she's trying to get out by car, by bus, by train, and or by taxi. And she can't do it. It gets even more surreal. And you get the feeling that she's stuck in some type of purgatory state. Um, and the final climax is where she's 
drawn back into this creepy abandoned pavilion. Um, she's given. She's also seen like these really strange, surreal images of a bunch of ghouls and corpses and spirits dancing this weird ethereal dance. The spirits start chasing her, attacking her. She disappears off the beach. End of the story as we, spoilers, um, we are, we're back in Kansas. The car gets pulled out of the, the river and we see that uh, Mary Henny was dead the entire time. I'm like, dun, dun, dun. yeah, so like very Twilight Zone type of twist. Uh, although I don't think they stuck the narrative, or stuck, stuck the impact like narrative left, but technically like this movie... Like honestly, so like, just to backtrack, I, if you, I, I went to this movie with zero context, zero research, and <laughs> if you would have told me this movie was a cult classic or he- heralded as one of the greatest horror movies of all time, I would have called bullshit because I didn't think it would de- deserve that. Just from the, the the from a story standpoint, um, but I could you know while watching the movie, I can't understand why. It could be a lot of that because of the techniques, uh, like some of the visuals, some of the some of the the way they produce the shots. Like there's like a this movie had a lot of uh, uh, smart hacks and tips to like uh, to film the fil- to film it because it was ex- it was filmed on an extremely low budget. It was filmed for like thirty three thousand dollars, and with um, a five person crew. Yes, extremely small crew, and they were doing some cool tricks like repurposing a, a specific type of camera to be used in a new way. Uh, they were doing guerrilla filming where they were they were filming a lot of the movie like without permits, or they they randomly paid off uh, people at a department store to shoot scenes really quickly. There were some scenes where like they were very strange and abstract, and they they there were callbacks to much older schools of film like german expressionism um so i can definitely see why how this movie can be so cited and lauded and was can be cited as like a major inspiration for people like david lynch and romero um so i'm not I like mean, shitting now- on like the, pro- the process i just didn't like the movie narratively and that that's totally understandable but down to the way the souls were portrayed, it was very cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and which is German expressionism, and as was Nosferatu. So in in our Nosferatu episode, I think we sort of touched on it, but the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is more of a true representation of what German expressionism is. But yeah, you're 100% right. You can see the inspiration that they took from that era of film to do this movie. I Yeah, it's just, it's borrowed from so much. And I, uh, yeah. Rob, curious, why do you, I mean, you enjoy this movie way more than I do. So like, so like, yeah. why do you enjoy it? And why, why do you think... <laughs> Like, why do you think it's such a crazy, popular cult film? Because, like, I was honestly really surprised at how 
critically acclaimed it is, like posthumously. I mean, it 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 bombed really badly at the box office, but like over time, where it was played on played on on the TV, and it's it's gotten like a much much more favorable review over time. And like I, I'm just curious to see your thought because like, I I'm like very very biased in my opinion, and like I you know, <laughs> uh, but I'm curious to see for someone who maybe knows film theory more than I do because I know you study a lot of film in college and um and I feel like you would have uh the more of the language and the knowledge to like to like explain to me why this is such a a, a beloved film so this kind of like a lot of the stuff from back in the day became this belated underground hit and so it bombed in its time and as time went on and people watched it, whether it was, oh, look what I found in my mom's basement or in a film class, kind of like the way I was exposed to stuff like this. There is a, a group of kind of like this, kind of like uh, Cal- uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um, uh, art house inspiration, kind of like Ingmar Bergman. These movies lay that groundwork for people like David Lynch, for people like M. Night Shyamalan. And I will go so far as to say even like James Wan in Insidious. There are elements that people who watch these movies become fascinated with and choose to put into their own films because they get inspired by or they're in awe of the way certain things were done. And that is... Carnival of Souls is very much like that. Yes, it completely bombed in its time, but over time, it gained this following. And I had never heard of it until I saw it in film class. And we put that scene up against a a bunch of different films in an avant-garde film class that I took. And again, I don't mean to say any of this to sound pretentious as hell. I really don't. But it was one of the classes that I took because I knew I would get exposed to films that. I would never watch outside of a class like that. So you get to see these little like art house darlings that unknowingly paved the way for some of these beloved horror movies that we have now. And I think that that's what makes them these under these hits. I think that that's what helps gain this cult following is you watch it and even though you're put off by it or there's something and you don't think that there's anything truly original about it if you pit it up against what you have now it is truly original in what they technically did and stylistically did not necessarily narratively that those stories i mean and that was that's also sort of the beauty of it right you take a a story that is very simple and you make stylistic choices with it where you go, huh, you know, I never would have thought to do that. Repurposing a camera. Like, you think about all that stuff now and you don't necessarily have to do it because people have the funding and the money or the technology to do all that stuff. I mean, you could film entire movies on your iPhone, but, honestly. Exactly, exactly. But in 1962 or 1922, the 30s, the 40s, anytime you look at uh, films... 
And I know we're going to keep having this conversation the more films that we start to talk about that are made from the 60s down. These conversations are going to keep coming up because it's the choices that they make with something so simple. It's why German Expressionism is such a beautiful stylistic film type of film to watch because it's the simplest things that were so successful and it just it really like it it paved the way for a lot of the stuff that we're watching today and i think that, again that i think that's where it garners its, its success from not not from the story choices yeah uh technically i mean i i i'm no filmmaker so honestly i couldn't make anything like this Especially on a shoe, especially on a shoestring budget like them, and like I was pretty amused by um, uh, all these tricks and hacks, especially like like paying off random people. Like, hey, hey, shh, uh, I just need to film. I need to film this this weird se sequence. I want you to ignore this lady and do it for ten minutes while we're rolling cameras, and it will be out of your hair. I was like, I find that like incredibly endearing. Um, but uh, I just, I don't know. I, I, I know in terms it's, of the story, I movies, think... Movies like this is not everyone's cup of tea. I, it, it really, it really truly isn't. Um, and again, I probably wouldn't, this movie wouldn't be on our list. And I probably wouldn't have such a fascination that I do with it had I not seen it in the lens, had I had not been exposed to it under the lens that I, that I did. We would not be having this conversation. We wouldn't be watching this movie. We probably would have read an article about it and been like, eh, and moved on. And moved on. Yeah, uh, but I don't know. It just underscores how surprising this was. Because, like, uh, when, I was, when I was doing some, like, backup homework, this movie is, like, it's really, really well praised. Like, you know, it's, it's praised by... Lynch and Romero and Lucretia Martel and James Wan and uh, it's on the Criterion Collection and there was uh, there was like a special on riff tracks and uh, there was like a commentary track from like a writer on Mystery Science Theater 3000 and uh, I, I, I could go on and on like there's so many awards and I it's technically I could see where it is but like as the mo the movie as it is on its own two feet it's like i don't i don't see how it deserves that and maybe i mean this is this is coming from someone who also likes our house films as well so it's not like like or unless i am really too dumb and i am <laughs> missing no, something no, 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 no. um but like yeah there's like some things a little, like just completely mystify like i i don't understand what's the, the what's the significance of the strange pavilion is it is this is this just like a literal is it a literal i don't know anchor for spirits to hang around in or is it like it's not okay so is, is it like some uh, some some extended metaphor about the the river sticks because it's near a body of water and like the pale man's actually Sharon he's trying to convince like hey come on come on back you're actually dead you don't know it yet come on let's go <laughs> we got we got places to be 
I can promise you the director probably wasn't even thinking about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> this, is, this is part of the reason why I don't like the term art house, even though that's what we've deemed it, because it makes it sound like these movies are far more intelligent than they actually are. And it really, you're giving it far too much credit. It's literally just called art house, in my opinion, and this is what I took from it, because of the stylistic choices that they made for a film like that. I mean... I need you to watch Eraserhead just so you can sort of like, you want to talk about a weird movie that's plot is so basic and simple and you watch it and you go, what the fuck did I just watch? But you're so captivated by it. Eraserhead, 1977, David Lynch, one of those directors that was heavily inspired by Carnival of Souls and Ingmar Bergman. Like, whoa, you know how the director of... The Strangers said that part of his inspiration uh, for The Strangers was someone did, like, come to his door, like, call him and ask for someone who wasn't there. And he took that and sort of, like, ran with it. And that was part of the, quote-unquote, based on a true story. The director, when he was driving home one day, saw this pavilion and was like... I need to, it was abandoned and he was like I need to do something with this. 3 weeks later he had a script. And that yeah. was it. That was it. I mean, yeah, you find <laughs> inspiration anywhere, you know. And that's and that, but that's really it. it. So like you see it as, you know, she's yes, she's dead the whole time and an argument could be made that those wavy lines could be uh her really being still under the water and that's supposed to be a hint or it could be fuck all. Like we don't know. It's all I think it's all sort of up to interpretation, and that's another reason why these movies like this are subject matter in film classes, because it creates a conversation. I don't think, regardless of what the director says or what the synopsis says, I don't think there's a fucking right answer. You think mm. it's the it's the river sticks? That's cool. I, I was just pulling out of my pulling you pulling were, out of thin air because like pulling it, it, it out of your ass. But if you were in a film <laughs> class in college and you said that, someone could go, "All right, let's talk about that." <laughs> I, the you thing, the, the way the way I thought of like the, re the reason why I pulled that out of thin air is because like yeah. they spent so much time so focusing on the pavilion. And it's like, what is what is this? Just like an interesting set piece, or is this some deeper meaning? And it's like I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the the white grease paint makeup, I think, was also sort of very common. Like, cabinet of Dr. Caligari, he's wearing white, like, white grease paint. It's there. The eye makeup, the way the, the guy looks, looks exactly like the people from Carnival of Souls. So you can see these little things that sort of get strewn and, like, strewn together throughout time when you, like, even the tiniest thing in a modern horror movie, you can go... Oh, yeah. He probably took that from this. I can't yeah. wait till we start getting into Italian horror. That's a whole other beautiful realm of of art that we, <laughs> I, I haven't really explored a lot of Italian horror. So oh, that's kind of like new there. territory. So oh, we are so going to get there. We're going to have like a, a whole chunk of episodes that's just going to be Italian horror. <laughs> so, but. yeah. But again, it's it's those movies that have these selective little things that uh, when you see them enough in older movies, you can rewatch a modern horror movie or even see like not even rewatching 
something from the 2000s, even something very, like, even some of the more recent stuff, the more you watch some of the older stuff, the more you can sort of see it reflected in the newer stuff that is growing a new generation of horror lovers, I think. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's, that's why it, it's sort of fun to watch the older ones because you and I can have conversations like this and it's not necessarily because they're they're good or revolutionary it's just what they did with what they had yeah I mean again technically I think this movie deserves praise don't uh, it's not not a movie I would rewatch again honestly uh, no, this a, this is not this movie never would have won an Oscar for best screenplay. Yeah, it's not. It's yeah, very much not that. Yeah, I mean, this is def to me. This is definitely a type of movie. You know, I would have if it not if not for this podcast. I would, you know, if I took a film class. You know, it's probably the only other context I would like watch this film because, like, yeah, yeah, that's the only context I had for this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, it was interesting, but yeah. eh. <laughs> it's I, not least, Chris's cup of tea. Not he, my he cup of tea. It, not this he film. He gives it one pavilion. I'll give it. Uh, he I gives it I, half. I, I want to give it me, okay, maybe a two, two pavilions out of five. But like, oh, okay. I don't know. I mean, the way I've been sounding this entire episode, it sounds like a one, but it's actually a two. I don't think. I don't think it's. I don't think it's like uh, Uncle Sam levels of bad or I forget what other movies we reviewed. It's been, we've Thanks done killing. so many episodes. I, Thanks Killing. I love Thanks Killing. Yeah, Thanks Killing 2. Thanks Killing 2 is by far the worst one. But like, I you love Thanks Killing. Thanks Killing 3. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Thanks Killing 3. Yes. Thank you for correcting me. Anyway. It's trash. But yeah. So this this for me sits at a solid 3. Just, just because I have a soft spot. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's our time to to be taken away by the spirits <laughs> as we're chilling on the beach by the ferry. Yeah. Oh, okay. On that note, <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of Life for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LeftForDreadPod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can check us out on our website at LeftForDread.com. Yep, and uh, again, thank you for listening. I may not have enjoyed Carnival Souls, but if you watched it and you enjoyed it, good for you. I'm happy. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, we have some more older school movies to look forward to, so stay tuned. And as always, stay dreadful! Stay dreadful. <laughs> <laughs>